0: Welcome to another episode of our Molecular Cell Biology Podcast, a show in which we explore the inner functioning of our cells, the little structures that, when put together, form every tissue, every organ, and every system in our bodies. I am your host, Dr. Herman Rosas Acosta, Associate Professor at the Department of Biological Sciences at UTEP, the University of Texas at El Paso. In this episode, we will explore how cells that replicate actually manage to make two identical copies of their genome in preparation for cell division, so that each of the two new daughter cells generated upon mitosis will end up with a complete and fully faithful copy of the renal genome. Have you ever wondered how is it possible for cells in your body to replicate your genome every time that they are going to divide into new daughter cells? Have you ever questioned how is your genome replicated over and over so that every cell in your body may carry the same identical genome? And how is it that the cells avoid replicating the genome again more than once? And how is it that accuracy is maintained during the process? These are some of the fundamental questions that we will try to address in this episode of our podcast. Your body, the totality of the cells that make you, could be thought of as belonging to two main types of cells, reproductive cells and somatic cells. Reproductive cells, also known as gametes, are those that are used exclusively to reproduce, that is, to generate the cells that will have the ability to fuse with another gamete to produce a fertilized egg that will go on to produce a new member of our species, a new human. Somatic cells are all the other cells that form pretty much every structure in your body. Somatic cells carry two full sets of chromosomes and therefore they are said to be diploid, as previously defined in previous episodes. In contrast, gametes carry only one set of chromosomes and therefore are said to be haploid. Somatic cells can also be divided into two types of cells. Those that have undergone a terminal type of cellular differentiation and are therefore incapable of multiplying, and those that can undergo cell division to generate two new daughter cells. While adults have a substantial number of terminally differentiated cells, even the oldest individuals of our species still retain a substantial number of cells capable of proliferating. That is, cells that have the ability to progress through the process that we refer to as the cell cycle and generate two new daughter cells. Importantly, the new daughter cells generated must contain identical copies of the original genome that was contained in the replicating cell. Furthermore, the way the genetic information is organized in the original replicating cell meaning the genes that were active and the ones that were dormant must also be retained and faithfully reproduced in each of the two identical copies of the genome that are produced so that cell identity will be preserved. This is expected as, for example, a liver cell is expected to produce two new liver cells and An epithelial cell is expected to produce two new epithelial cells, and so forth. So for those cells that are capable of going through the cell cycle to produce two new cells, how are they able to accurately replicate their genome in preparation for cell division? Before addressing this question, let's start by reformulating the question in quantitative terms. The average proliferating mammalian cell goes through a complete cell cycle, that is, from one cell division to the next, in about 20 to 24 hours. And out of that time frame, only about 8 hours are spent in S phase, also known as the synthesis phase, the stage in which DNA is replicated. So, the totality of our genome is replicated with high fidelity, meaning very few if any errors are made during the process in only 8 hours. And remember, the size of our genome is 6.4 billion base pairs, so 6400 million base pairs are faithfully replicated in 8 hours. So how is this feat achieved? (laughs) To give a better reference to the enormity of this task, remember that the printed version of the haploid complement of the human genome took 69,767 pages, almost 70,000 pages, each containing 43,000 characters. For further reference, you can think of replicating the human genome as typing over the DNA sequence to create a copy of it. And the fastest known keyword typist average 150 words per minute or 750 characters per minute on a 50-minute test. At that speed, it will take that typist about 57 minutes to type a single page with 43,000 characters. <laughs> If we assume the speed of the typist will increase by a factor of 3 when only 4 characters are needed, that will mean about 20 minutes per page for the best human typist. And there are about 70,000 pages that need to be typed over. So again, given the enormity of the task of replicating the human genome, how is this actually achieved? Before getting into the molecular details of how DNA replication takes place, there are four essential concepts or ideas that must be taken into consideration. The first important idea related to DNA replication is that it is a process driven by two main enzymatic reactions, one in which the double-stranded DNA molecule is open up, separating the strands from each other, and another in which each strand is used as a template for the synthesis of a complementary strand of DNA. (laughs) So for every new double-stranded molecule produced, only one of the two strands is truly being synthesized while the other one is simply being used as a template to guide the synthesis of the other one. Because of this fact, DNA replication is considered to be a semi-conservative process. The second essential idea related to DNA replication is that the main enzymatic player involved in the process, the one that actually replicates the DNA molecule, is an enzyme known as DNA polymerase. Its name indicates that it drives the polymerization of a DNA molecule. In this context, Polymerization can be thought of, meaning connecting nucleotides to form a DNA strand. The third essential idea related to DNA replication is that it is a unidirectional process, meaning it only occurs in one direction, and that direction is from the 5' phosphate end of the molecule to the 3' hydroxyl end of the molecule. This means that each new nucleotide being added during the synthesis of a new strand of DNA will be added through its 5' phosphate group to the 3' hydroxyl end of the nascent DNA strand that is being synthesized. This property is directly related to the activity of the DNA polymerases, which are only able to catalyze the formation of a new phosphodiester bond the type of bond that links a nucleotide with the next nucleotide in the DNA molecule, in that specific manner. The fourth and final essential idea related to DNA replication is that it cannot start de novo. This means that if all you have is a single-stranded DNA molecule ready to be used as a template, DNA polymerase will not be able to start synthesizing a new complementary strand of DNA by itself. Instead, it requires the presence of a primer, that is, a short strand of either DNA or RNA already hydrogen bonded to the template and providing a free 3' hydroxyl group to which the next nucleotide will be added. Another way to state this final idea is that DNA polymerases are only capable of elongating a pre-existing primer already pre-formed on the template, but are not able to start synthesis in the absence of such primer. With these essential ideas, let's take a short break before we go into the actual process of DNA synthesis. Now we know that DNA replication involves two activities, opening the double-stranded DNA molecule and then using the single-stranded molecules produced as templates for the synthesis of a new complementary strand. The synthesis is driven by DNA polymerase, which is only capable of adding one nucleotide at the 3' end of the growing chain being synthesized and requires the presence of a primer because DNA polymerases can't initiate DNA synthesis in the absence of such primer. With that in mind, it is easy to then make sense of the process itself. The first step will be opening the double-stranded DNA molecule. But, where should it be opened? In random locations in our genome? Well, the places where DNA synthesis starts are known as origins of replication, and there are about 30,000 of those in the human genome, which explains why it is possible to replicate the DNA genome in only about 8 hours. Going back to our analogy of typists copying the sequence of the human genome, this is equivalent to not having just one typist doing the job, but having 30,000 of them. If each of them can type a page every 20 minutes, then 30,000 of them should be able to finish the job in under one hour. But there are other peculiarities in the process that dramatically decrease the de facto speed of synthesis. So, again, there are 30,000 origins of replication in the human genome, and they are not random places. They are places that, although don't exhibit any known specific sequence element, they appear to contain structural motifs that are recognized by the very first protein players involved in DNA replication. which. Is a large protein complex known as the origin recognition complex, or ORC. Origin recognition complexes then recruit the machinery involved in opening the double stranded DNA molecule to generate single stranded molecules that can be used as templates. This is the role of the so called DNA helicase. Specifically, this activity is the job of a large multi-protein complex known as the CMG helicase, in which the heart of the structure, the structure that actually contains the DNA helicase activity, is the so-called MCM helicase, a group of six proteins closely related to each other, and that forms a donut-shaped structure that embraces one of the two strands of DNA. The six proteins that form the MCM helicase are MCM2, MCM3, MCM4, MCM5, MCM6, and MCM7. So the MCM helicase is also referred to as the MCM227. For simplicity, we will simply refer to it as MCM. So the MCM is like a donut that embraces one strand out of the two strands of the double-stranded DNA molecule, and as it slides along the DNA, it dissociates the hydrogen bonds that connect the two strands, rendering the DNA into two separate single-stranded molecules that can be used as templates for DNA synthesis. The recognition of origins of replication by the orcs and the subsequent recruitment of the MCM helicase are events that occur during the stage of the cell cycle that precedes the S phase or synthesis phase. But, the event that initiates the S phase itself is the activation of the MCM helicase, forming the CMG helicase, which is the fully active form of the multiprotein complex involved in opening the double-stranded DNA molecule. In this complex, C stands for CDC45, M stands for the MCM helicase, and G stands for the genes complex. Importantly, this activation event can only occur once per cell cycle, and this is what prevents our genome from being replicated more than once. Okay, let's summarize briefly. So the first stage in DNA replication is recognizing the places where replication must start, which are known as origins of replication, and recognizing such places is the job of the so-called origin recognition complex, which, once it is properly placed on top of the Ori region, recruits the replicative helicase MCM. Then the MCM is activated through the recruitment of a few other protein players forming the CMG helicase, case and this leads to the opening of the double-stranded molecule of DNA. And now we're about to be ready to start DNA replication. Okay, let's take a brief break before moving on. So now we have two single-stranded molecules that can be used as templates for DNA synthesis. Can we start synthesis now? Well, not so fast. There are two additional events that must take place for DNA replication to start. First you must keep the DNA molecule from forming a double-stranded structure again, which is the energetically favorable event when you open the double-stranded DNA molecule, as complementary bases tend to form hydrogen bonds spontaneously. To do this, to keep the DNA open, the next protein player to be recruited is the single-stranded DNA binding protein known as replication protein A or A. RPA. So multiple copies of RPA are recruited to places where the double-stranded DNA molecule has been recently opened by the action of the CMG helicase. An RPA keeps the complementary single DNA strands from reestablishing hydrogen bonds and reforming the double-stranded DNA molecule. Now It is time to finally start synthesizing something. But the funny part is that the first thing to be synthesized is not DNA, but RNA. Wait, am I serious? All of that and the first thing to be synthesized is RNA? Yep, I'm totally serious. The reason behind this is that DNA cannot be synthesized de novo. Remember how we said that not too long ago? DNA polymerases only know how to add nucleotides to a primer already forming hydrogen bonds with the template, and they do it by incorporating a new nucleotide at the 3' hydroxyl group of the growing chain, using the 5' triphosphate of the incoming deoxynucleotide to be incorporated. In fact, the triphosphate of the incoming deoxynucleotide, the hydrolysis of such triphosphate group, is the one that provides the free energy to drive the formation of a phosphodiester bond between the 3' hydroxyl group and the 5' phosphate group. So, since DNA synthesis cannot start de novo, the first thing to be synthesized is a short RNA primer. So the next enzyme involved in the process is an RNA polymerase, one known as primase. Primase synthesizes a short primer of ribonucleotides, but primase has very low processivity, which means that it can only add very few nucleotides before interrupting its activity, and it's quickly substituted by a DNA polymerase that comes together with primase a DNA primase known as DNA pole alpha. This complex is frequently referred to as the DNA primase alpha primase complex. So DNA primase alpha adds the first few the oxyribonucleotides at the end of the RNA primer synthesized by primase thus finally start in DNA synthesis. But DNA pol alpha also has low processivity and it rapidly falls off its template, leaving behind a short RNA DNA primer. But the stage is now set for the speedy and highly processive stage of DNA replication the one mediated by the highly processive DNA polymerases. But before they come into action, there are two additional protein players that must become engaged. The so-called clamp loading protein, or replication factor C, and the sliding clamp protein, or PCNA, proliferating cell's nuclear antigen. The clamp loading protein Replication factor C, or RFC, is a large protein complex whose only role is to load the sliding clamp protein, as clearly indicated by its name. So RFC facilitates the assembly and disassembly of the sliding clamp protein, therefore making the process substantially more efficient. The sliding clamp protein PCNA is another donut-shaped protein that has the ability to embrace the single-stranded DNA molecule and acts as a sliding anchor for the replication machinery, providing it with a place to hold on while performing its job of replicating the DNA. The donut structure formed by PCNA is formed when three copies of this protein associate Tightly to each other around the DNA molecule. So the loaded PCNA complex is a homotrimer, three copies of the same protein. Once PCNA is in place, the replicative DNA polymerases are finally ready to enter in action. There are two different replicative DNA polymerases in human cells. DNA polymerase delta and DNA primaries Epsilon. They both share numerous properties, including having high processivity, which means that they remain active for a while, incorporating thousands of nucleotides before falling off, and low error rate. But they differ in one key aspect. One is involved in synthesizing primarily the lagging strand, whereas the other is involved in synthesizing the leading strand. Hmm, I guess at this point we must talk about that, the difference between leading and lagging strand synthesis. But before doing this, let's take another short break. Okay, let's try to understand the difference between lagging and leading strand synthesis. And to do so, let's take one step back and think about the nature of the molecule that is being replicated. The DNA strands that form our genome are not single-stranded molecules. They are double-stranded molecules, and the two strands run in opposite directions. So, when the helicase embraces one of the two strands and opens up the double strand producing single-stranded templates, both single-stranded molecules must be used as templates for replication, so that two new molecules of double-stranded DNA will be produced upon replication. So, in every origin of replication, two helicases are recruited and they will be moving in opposite directions, generating two so-called replication forks, because of the shape adopted by the DNA when it is opened by the helicase. But the issue with this is that DNA synthesis is a unidirectional process. Remember how we stated that DNA synthesis can only happen in the 5' to 3' direction. This implies that... As the replication fork moves due to the movement of the helicase opening the double-stranded DNA molecule and generating the two single-stranded DNA templates, one of the templates will be synthesized as a continuous molecule because its synthesis will occur in the same direction as the movement of the fork and the helicase in the 5' to 3' direction, whereas the synthesis of the other strand will happen in segments as it will occur in a direction opposite from that of the movement of the helicase. The strand that is synthesized as a continuous molecule is the leading strand, whereas the strand that is synthesized as short segments constitutes the lagging strand. The length of the short segments synthesized, which are referred to as Okazaki fragments in honor of their discoverer, is about 2000 base pairs in bacteria, whereas in eukaryotic cells they average 200 base pairs in length. Once again, they only average about 200 base pairs in length in eukaryotic cells, which seems to correspond to the average number of base pairs that form a nucleosome. Okay, so going back to the two replicative DNA polymerases. DNA polymerase epsilon is the one that becomes engaged in the synthesis of the leading strand, whereas DNA polymerase delta is the one that becomes engaged in the synthesis of the lagging strand. The synthesis of the lean strand will continue uninterrupted until the replication fork collides with another replication fork moving in the opposite direction. And this triggers the disassembly of the MCM helicase thus ending the replication process. And again remember that the MCM helicase complex can only be formed once every cell cycle so replication cannot restart again. As for the lagging strand, the process is one that requires the continuous involvement of the DNA primase alpha primase complex to synthesize new primers that will allow restarting the synthesis of a new Okazaki fragment, plus RFC, PCNA, and DNA primase delta. Importantly, there are three additional activities that are also involved in the synthesis of the lagging strand. The first is that of an enzyme that eliminates the RNA primer synthesized by primase. This because otherwise you'll end up with a hybrid molecule that contains both ribo- and deoxyribonucleotides. That enzyme is RNase H. The second activity is a DNAase that is associated to RNAs H, which eliminates a few additional deoxynucleotides that follow the RNA primer. This is a 5' to 3' exonuclease, and its activity is very important since it eliminates the oxyribonucleotides added by DNA polymerase alpha, which is an error-prone polymerase. We will talk about this in a few minutes. Finally, the last activity needed is that of a ligase. This is the enzyme that creates a phosphodiester bond between the 3' hydroxyl group of the last deoxyribonucleotide added by DNA polymerase delta and the first exposed 5' monophosphate group left by the 5' to 3' exonuclease. So the ligase joins adjacent repair Okazaki fragments, the ones left after the activity of the RNAs and the DNAs, creating a continuous strand of DNA in the lagging strand. As for the leading strand, this process in the lagging strand continues until the replication fork collides with another replication fork moving in the opposite direction, and this ends the process of replication. So that's how DNA replication takes place in general. It is a complex process involving numerous different enzymatic activities that must act in a coordinated manner to allow the accurate replication of the DNA molecule. But this brings up the last important topic related to DNA replication, and that is, how is fidelity achieved? In other words, how is it possible to replicate the totality of the human genome without making any errors in the process? Let's take a short break before addressing this final point. So, the last topic we will address in this episode of our podcast is how is fidelity achieved during DNA replication? Fidelity relates to the frequency at which a DNA polymerase incorporates the wrong nucleotide, that is, one that does not follow the watson crick base pairing rules. Those rules state that AG will always be put in place when the template has AC and vice versa, and A will always be put in place when the template has AT and vice versa. The replicative DNA polymerases, DNA primaries polymerase delta and epsilon, are endowed with high fidelity. That is, they rarely incorporate the wrong nucleotide during DNA replication. But exactly how frequently is rarely? Well, in average, DNA polymerase delta and epsilon make one mistake every 100 million base pairs. That is, one error every one times 10 to the eight base pairs. In contrast, DNA polymerase alpha makes an error every 100,000 base pairs. So, how do DNA polymerases achieve fidelity? The first source of fidelity is the fact that the formation of hydrogen bonds between properly complementary nucleotides, Gs and Cs, As and Ts, is energetically favorable, and the energy differential of such interactions is about 100 times higher than the energy requirement needed to form an erroneous hydrogen bond so Watson and Crick hydrogen bond formation already increases the fidelity of the process by a factor of 100. The second source of fidelity is the fact that DNA polymerases have the ability to undergo a conformational change that facilitates the formation of a new phosphodiester bond when the right nucleotide is selected. That is, when the polymerase grabs the right nucleotide that should be added during synthesis. This selectivity, exhibited by DNA polymerases, this ability to select the right nucleotide, further increases fidelity by a factor of 1000. If the only contributors toward fidelity were the energy required for proper hydrogen bond formation and the selectivity displayed by DNA polymerase, then the rate of error would be about one mistake every 100,000 base pairs. This is the error rate of DNA polymerase alpha. So DNA polymerase alpha lacks the last contributor Or fidelity, one referred to as proofreading activity, one that is specific of the replicative DNA polymerases, DNA polymerase delta and DNA polymerase epsilon. (music) Proofreading activity is the ability of some polymerases to verify whether they have added the right nucleotide, and if not, remove it and put the right nucleotide in place before moving forward. The proofreading activity is defined as a 3' to 5' exonuclease activity, as the nucleotide eliminated is the one at the 3' hydroxyl end of the nascent molecule of DNA being synthesized. Proof reading the 3 prime to 5 prime exonuclease activity is the equivalent of the backspace button in our computers. It leads the last character we typed and places the cursor back in that position so that we can have a second try at adding the right character. This activity increases the fidelity of the polymerases that have it by another 1,000-fold. But not all DNA polymerases have this activity. In fact, this activity is for the most part exclusive of the replicative DNA polymerases, DNA polymerase delta and DNA polymerase epsilon. And with this, we have reached the end of the basics related to DNA replication in human cells. So before we sum it all up, let's take our final break. And it is time to sum it all up. So, in this episode, we learned numerous facts and ideas related to the way our cells replicate their DNA. First, we learned that the totality of our genome, that is, the 6.4 billion base pairs that form our diploid genome, must be correctly replicated in every cell that is expected to undergo mitosis to generate two new cells. We also learned... That the main player during the process of DNA replication is DNA polymerase, but its action requires the concerted action of multiple additional enzymatic players, including the ones that recognize the sites where replication starts or regions, the ones involved in opening the double-stranded DNA molecules so that it can be used as a template, the helicases, and the many additional enzymes that are required to allow DNA replication to start and the highly-processive DNA polymerases to be loaded onto the template. We also learned that Due to the fact that DNA polymerases are unable to start synthesis de novo and are only able to catalyze the incorporation of new nucleotides in the 5' to 3' direction, DNA synthesis occurs in a continuous manner in one of the strands used as template and in a discontinuous manner in the complementary strand. This discontinuous synthesis produces relatively short RNA-DNA segments known as Okazaki fragments, which need to be polished to eliminate the RNA component and glue consecutive segments together. Finally, we learned that the fidelity of the process is due in part to properties inherent to the DNA primraces, such as selectivity and proofreading activity. And here are other important ideas that, although were not discussed, are important and must be kept in mind. First, the unwinding of the double-stranded DNA molecule triggers rotation of the DNA around its own axis, and this, in turn, produces the formation of knots ahead of the replication fork. These knots must be efficiently dealt with, and doing so, Requires the activity of additional enzymes known as topoisomerases. Second, it must also be kept in mind that the DNA to be replicated is packaged in the form of nucleosomes that are organized in the form of topologically associating domains or TATs. Because of their nature, nucleosomes and TATs impose barriers to the activity of the replication machinery. So, they must be pushed aside while replication takes place and put rapidly back in place once the replication machinery has passed through to allow the information associated to nucleosomes and TATs to be maintained. The way that this is achieved and orchestrated is one of the biggest areas of continuous research related to DNA replication as it is not fully understood yet. And finally, replication of the ends of chromosomes in the regions referred to as telomeres requires an additional type of activity, one mediated by an enzyme known as telomerase and whose activity and mode of action will be the topic of a future podcast. And with this, we come to the conclusion of another episode of our Molecular Cell Biology Podcast, a show in which we explore the inner functioning of our cells. Remember that knowledge has intrinsic value of its own and therefore it adds real value to your life. That's why our official mantra for this show is that knowledge is power. If you like this podcast, indicate so by liking it and subscribing to our podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, email me at grosasacosta at me.com Once again, the email is g r o s a s a c o s t a at me.com and indicate podcast in your subject line. If you are curious and want to explore even more, visit my webpage. To do so, google The Flu Sumo Guy. That should drag you to my webpage, where you will find the transcript to this podcast, along with numerous extra links and materials to help you learn more about yourselves and yourself. Thank you for listening to this show.